You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Scurvy Legs, Brendan, Kruger, Ironside, MD, Big Beard, Willie P, Schmarls, Ketzel, Josiah, Logan, Pablo, Fraser, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Jack Joyce, The Knight of Dampier, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Drunken Dak, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefei, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. Last time we talked about the history of alcohol in the ancient world, specifically its role in ancient Mesopotamia and Greece and Rome, and we talked about the role of women and brothels in the production and distribution of wine. Today we're going to discuss, well, this is something of a danger zone for me. See, What we're going to discuss today is one of my favorite historical topics, or rather it combines a bunch of my favorite topics. The spread of ancient nomadic peoples, their uses of things like language and of writing, their pottery styles, their cultural and even religious norms, and naturally their use of alcohol. It would be very easy for me to go off on any of those deep into the weeds, but we do have a particular point we're trying to get to today, a point that matches our current point in our overall story. So while we are talking about the European alcohol tradition, we're going to be moving fast. Because it's not only that, we're also going to incorporate the Islamic tradition and the Southeast Asian tradition to finally come to light on a bottle of rum. This is episode 112, The Water of Life. We begin today in the mists of prehistory. At least it's prehistory for the people with which we are concerned today. Down in Mesopotamia, they were writing down laws and account ledgers and epic poems. They were deep into their recorded history. But the people we're talking about today are what linguists call the Proto-Indo-European peoples. It's a name that indicates the spread of their language and their language family from India to Europe. Now, in the early days of the study of linguistics, they called these people Aryans. It's a practice that, for obvious reasons, they stopped in the early 1930s. There is, though, a bit of a swing back on that pendulum in the last few years. Some scholars have reclaimed the term, using phrases like the Indo-Aryan peoples. But still, early linguistic theory could easily be misconstrued to equate culture and language 
with things like race and blood, and it has been, to disastrous effect. See, these people lived, as far back as we can tell at least, in the Eurasian steppe just to the north of the Black Sea. They were pastoral nomads, by which we mean they did not have a home base, they had limited agriculture, but they herded livestock. They herded donkeys and camels and goats, and most importantly, cows and horses. And over the centuries, these proto-Indo-Europeans began to mutate. They developed the stomach enzymes necessary to digest dairy. Or more accurately, they developed a genetic component that allowed them to keep their dairy digesting enzymes. You know, that's something that we all have as babies. It's how we digest mother's milk. But the Proto-Indo-Europeans kept that enzyme into adulthood. It allowed them to digest things like cow and horse milk and, most importantly, cheese. Now, it's important to remember that when you're discussing the movement of peoples in this era, you're talking mostly about culture, you know, language and religion and writing and pottery. It's not really about race. But there is a genetic component to it. Mainly, for our purposes, it's that dairy-digesting thing. Now, some anthropologists today think that this may be given more importance than it deserves, but the conventional wisdom tells us that this was among the most important developments in every region that these Indo-European peoples would touch. Now, digesting dairy may seem like a small thing, but it means that those peoples were able to take their food sources with them. They weren't tied down to the land. They didn't have a significant portion of their manpower tied up in agriculture. This gave them an amazing military advantage. Beyond that, they rode their food sources into battle. You know, the horse and, later on, the bridle were unbelievably important advancements in military technology. And, oh God, the chariot! I mean, from India to Persia to Troy and Greece and Rome, all of the ancient world, chariots are one of the seminal pieces of military technology. And the thing that ties all of this together, the theme that we find in the story of the Indo-Europeans is mobility. Horses and chariots are methods of travel. So, these Indo-European peoples, they traveled. And they did so mainly in three very large migrations. The first of these migrated east and south around the Black Sea, these are the peoples that would eventually become the Persians and the Vedic peoples of modern India. Then there's a group that traveled west and south around the Black Sea. And we find some of the oldest evidence of those migrations in the Balkans on the Black Sea coast. We find pottery and scraps of writing and traces of alcohol on the pottery. But those are the peoples that would eventually found city-states in places like Troy and ancient Greece and Rome. Now keep in mind that these were not single, one-time, giant migrations of peoples. You know, not 200,000 people on the move. These things happened over centuries, or even millennia. You would have these slow, gradual build-ups of what the local peoples might consider barbarian nomads on their borders. But eventually, it would lead to war and conquest and the establishment of 
some of the great empires of the ancient world, much of it on the backs of chariots. Or, just as often, even more often, in huge formations of horse archers, very similar to those of the Huns and Mongols. Now, just to touch on these two groups, who we aren't really concerned with today, I would like to note that in both those that would populate Persia and India, and those that would populate Greece and Rome, we find phrases like the water of life, or sometimes water of the gods. It's pretty clear that this phrase in the ancient Proto-Indo-European language was what they called alcohol. And we get a bunch of our words for foodstuffs from this Proto-Indo-European language. The apple, for example, or rather, the apple was actually a word for any kind of fruit. But you also have words like honey and honeybee, all of which are also found in our third group, the group we are concerned with today, the group that traveled north and west from that Black Sea region. They traveled north of the Carpathian Mountains into modern-day Poland and Germany. And these are called the Proto-Germanic peoples. And you can begin to see why some of these ideas, you know, linguistic distinctions mainly, but why they can become so problematic in the 19th and 20th centuries. You know, these are groups of peoples that did have military advantages and used those advantages to conquer much of the known world. But millennia after those advantages were no longer relevant to their world, they were believed to have some sort of racial superiority. Those movements are the reasons why symbols like, for example, the spinning cross, an image that represents nothing but the night sky or the zodiac, an image that was in use in all of the old Indo-European peoples from India to Ireland, well, you can see how that symbol might be misappropriated and stained with blackness when the Nazis adopted it as the swastika. There's a ton of this stuff, and this is the stuff that I could go on and on about for a long time, but isn't really relevant. As for our topic today, the alcoholic consumption of the people of early Europe, there isn't a whole lot of information prior to the arrival of the Romans. You know, we have some of that archaeological data we find in other regions, you know, traces of amino acids on fragments of pottery, but it's the Romans that give us the first written historical record of alcohol in Northern Europe. Now, most of that is in relation to the Celts and the Germans consuming Roman wine. But the consensus in works like those of Tacitus or even Julius Caesar is that that Roman wine dulled the barbaric sensibilities of those Gauls and Germans. It's also worth a mention that Julius Caesar did make note of the people of ancient Britannia making cider out of crab apples. But we do know that the Germans and the Gauls liked wine and ale, and by late antiquity they were producing their own in huge quantities. And when I say the Germans, I'm not talking about the people of modern-day Germany. I'm talking about the Germanic-speaking peoples all over the late Empire and early Middle Age periods. That includes the Vandals and the Goths and the Angles and Saxons and the Franks and Burgundians, basically everybody who wasn't a Roman, and a lot of people who were Romans at the fall of the Empire. And their traditions in beer is one of the 
most famous culinary achievements of the Germanic peoples. But even perhaps more representative than beer, at least in the medieval era, is mead. And we talked about the widespread consumption of mead last time, but I think it's most famous in these Germanic peoples. You know, you've got Odin making a sacrifice of his own body to bring poetry and mead to the people in the Vedas. You've got the mead hall in the real world, which was important, but also in fictional epics like Beowulf. In those stories, as in the real world, it was the king's responsibility to provide his housecarls, his fighting men, with mead. And even the name, Beowulf, translates directly to bee hunter, so probably a bear. But it's associated with bees, and therefore honey, and therefore mead. Now the consumption of mead is actually an interesting metric for the spread of the Indo-European peoples. You know, you can follow their migrations better through archaeological evidence of mead than through their language. Because everybody was drinking mead, and mead was transported in pottery, which tends to last. Runic inscriptions, which were often made on wood, didn't. Naturally, this is an imperfect tool. I mean, trade does happen. There was Indo-European mead, transported into regions where there weren't any Indo-Europeans, but once a certain critical mass of pottery and evidence of mead is found in the archaeological record, we can assume that the Germanic peoples had become at least the dominant group in a region. But it's at this point, about the time that Beowulf was written, that we need to shift our focus to the east. As early as the 800s, Muslim chemists were distilling spirits from wine. This was when the Muslim world was enjoying its first flourishing of the Golden Age, when scientific and mathematic advances were flowing out of the Islamic world. Much of it was based on the writings of the Greek world that they came to inhabit. See, the medieval Muslims were less prone to destroying knowledge than the Catholic Church of the same era, so they were able to learn from it and build upon it. And they called this alchemical formula alcohol, or alcohol, in the Arabic. Now, the distillation process that they developed made it to Italy by the 1200s, where medieval Latin named it alcohol. But that name, I mean, it's just a little bit heathen, isn't it? Shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside 
The Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. I mean, they were, after all, at war with the Muslim world. Europe was well into its Eighth Crusade by that point. And the kings of Europe didn't much care for these Moorish words like alcohol. So instead, they used one of their ancient words. They named this distilled ethanol aqua vitae, the water of life. Now, we noted that this is an ancient phrase in the Indo-European language, but by this point it was mainly in use as a reference to holy water in the church. However, within about a century of distilled alcohol's introduction to Europe, it became synonymous with spirits. You know, you might have beer and ale and wine and mead and aquavite. The production of these spirits is synonymous with and absolutely condoned by the Catholic Church in this era. I mean, in moderation, absolutely. Excessive drunkenness was considered a sin, but in monasteries all over Europe, the water of life was being distilled. In fact, the names for modern alcohols from different regions all reflect this practice, this naming convention. There's an Italian aquavite. There's a French brandy called the U de V, a direct translation of water of life. The word from vodka probably derives directly from a Slavic translation, maybe in Poland, and most famously, and I'm not going to try to pronounce it in the Irish here, is whiskey, which means literally water of life. Whiskey was being distilled as early as 1400 in Ireland, but oddly, the production of aquavite had yet to really catch on in England. The Scottish were developing their own distinct varieties of whiskey, but not the English. Now, this is probably due to the Norman domination of England at the time. I would note that in other Germanic and Anglo-Saxon parts of Europe, there is evidence of the distillation of mead. It doesn't seem to have a name of its own, at least not that I can find, but it did exist, and today you can find fortified honey wine, which I highly recommend. But in Norman England, they preferred to drink a good French drink, namely French brandy, or sometimes U de V. And it, you know, was difficult to grow grapes in medieval England, so they didn't produce their own, but more than that, so many of those high-ranking Norman nobles had lands in France that were growing the grapes that were producing the French brandy that was imported to England. So why would they dilute their profits by allowing production of aquavite in England? But this might seem strange, because soon England is going to be maybe the largest producer of alcoholic drinks in the entire world, or at least the English world will be. But to get there, to get to that point where England is producing more aquavitae than anywhere else, we need to go back to the east, even further to the east. In 7th century India, there are records of fruit wine and honey wine, and then there's a drink they called brum or broom. It was a wine, but probably distilled later on. However, exactly what was in brum is shrouded in some mystery. However, Marco Polo does seem to shed a little light on that mystery. 
His journals make reference to a fine sugar wine, a wine made out of cane sugar. And once Europeans began to show up in Southeast Asia in large numbers, we see a ton of examples of sugar cane wine all over Asia. From the Malay people in Indonesia, in the Philippines, anywhere, really, that sugar cane could grow. And this sugarcane wine was something of a delicacy. Everyone seems to have enjoyed it, but it was the sugar itself more than the wine produced that really drove the Europeans wild. I mean, it was the search for territory that could grow sugarcane that drove the early age of exploration. Christopher Columbus himself brought the seeds for sugarcane with him to America on his second voyage. And before you knew it, as soon as Europeans began colonizing the New World, it was, it was being grown everywhere. What they began to call king sugar was the single most important product of the Western Hemisphere. It eclipsed tobacco and cotton and hemp. It was the most important agricultural product. It, in itself, just sugar, rivaled all of the spices of the East Indies in economic impact. And you can see visualize the way that it changed the world just by looking at some old paintings. I mean, look at images from Elizabethan England. You've got these trim, slim men like Francis Drake in nearly every image, but just a few decades later, nearly all of the men, with a few soldiers notwithstanding, but nearly every man in those paintings is a bit rotund. And then, of course, it was sugar that was driving the slave trade. I mean, sugar was one of the integral factors of the triangle trade. It worked kind of like this. The sugar that was grown in the Caribbean was shipped to England. And in England, they traded the sugar for money and machinery for more sugar processing and goods that were needed in the colonies. Then on to Africa to purchase human beings and finally back to the Caribbean, that's basically the triangle trade, but there is a stop we skipped that would make it really more of a square trade. After departing the West Indies before heading for England, ships often stopped in the North American colonies. Now, the North American colonists, especially in the early days, didn't have money for processed sugar. That was expensive stuff. But they did have money for the byproduct of sugar manufacturing, for molasses. And you can use molasses in some recipes. You know, we still see it today in a number of traditional baked goods, I think, especially in American baked goods. But you can only bake so many cookies before you have this glut of molasses barrels filling up your warehouse. So the Americans, and... We're talking really early colonial days here. You know, bunkhouses and palisade forts with maybe one or two cannons from the ship they sailed over on. And in that kind of frontier situation, purified ethanol is very useful. It cleans wounds, it cleans mouths, and most of all, probably, it cleans water. But those very early Americans began to make a sugar wine from that molasses, and then they began to distill it. Now, this concoction tasted terrible. But it was strong. It did the job. 
it was used well for cleaning and water purification, and they could mix it with fruit juice to make it almost drinkable. And in that case, it only got you drunk. But it's hard to say where the word for this distilled sugar wine comes from. Now, there are a lot of possible answers here. A lot of ideas have been postulated. Rome, for example, both the name of the city and from the ancient Latin, from the Roma people of Central Europe, even from the Native Americans, but I think, and the most convincing argument, is that the name comes from Asia. Probably it came to America through the English sailors who were traversing the entire world. You know, we mentioned this Brum from India, a sugar wine, but there's also Rum from the Philippines, which probably both derive from the Sanskrit, a Proto-Indo-European language. And we do know that the English word for this distilled sugar wine was borrowed by the French and the Dutch and the Spanish. It became the name for this drink. And here we are obviously talking about rum. The first reference in English to rum in writing comes from a brief description of the island of Barbados in 1651. It reads, quote, The chief fundling they make in the island is Rumbullion, alias Kill Devil, and this is made of sugarcane distilled, a hot, hellish, and terrible liquor. End quote. And you know, the omnipresence of Kill Devil, of rum, in the world and story of the pirates is... It, it's omnipresent. And it's something that we're going to be talking about a whole lot in the future. But for right now, it's that fundling that I want to talk about. King Sugar was big business for every island in the West Indies. It's why there were so many plantations, why there were so many slaves shipped over from Africa. But the production of sugar was often subsidized, or rather funded, by absentee owners men who hoarded the profits from the sale of processed sugar for themselves, men who lived in England. So most of the money produced by that sugar was flowing back to the mother country. In the colonies, both in North America and the West Indies, they made their money mostly from rum. And before long, this rum bullion was competing in terms of profits with raw sugar, even in some areas outpacing it. In at least parts of North America, hogsheads of molasses and casks of rum began to be used as a, a kind of currency in place of hard coin. And that's a big deal. If a cask of rum can be traded for slaves or crops or books or clothes or luxury goods, if it can be used rather than the king's officially minted silver... Well, that makes it very, very easy to circumvent the taxman, doesn't it? This was, in effect, it was smuggling. It was a black market, but it was the largest part of the American economy by about the 1680s. That's a big part of why King James II was so eager to interfere in New England affairs, why he installed Edmund Andros to get the trade under crown control. Of course, the people of New England wanted nothing to do with Edmund Andros or 
those restrictions on the part of the crown. So in 1688 they kicked them out of New England, but it was that same year that the English had their glorious revolution, and William and Mary were installed on the thrones of England. But William and Mary had the same problems with the American rum production that King James had. And it's this that... Well, I wanted to talk about all of this today, all of this history, and all of it I skipped over because I find it fascinating and I enjoy this history. But there is a reason I wanted to talk about alcohol production, and specifically rum, at this point in our overall story. In 1690, King William and Queen Mary passed and promulgated an act for the encouraging the distilling of brandy and spirits from come and for laying several duties on low wines or spirits of the first extraction. Which is a snappy name. This act, though, did two big things that are going to impact our story. First, it prohibited the import of French brandy. That part of the act reads, quote, an act for prohibiting all trade and commerce with France. All brandies, aquavitae, and spirits are prohibited to be imported into this kingdom, End quote. French brandy was still big business in England, but this is an expected move. I mean, they were going to war with France. The second bit, though, is more important to the pirates. It reads, quote, Be it further enacted that all distillers and others who shall make any low wines, spirits, or brandy shall brew or cause their corn to be brewed and made into clean and wholesome drink. And, it goes on, from such drinks so made and prepared, without any mixture with any molasses wash or tilts or other materials whatsoever. End quote. Did you catch that? If you didn't, don't worry. They're going to reiterate it for you later on in that paragraph where they say that spirits need to be, quote, made from drink, made of malted corn entirely without any mixture aforesaid. End quote. By which they mean molasses. Now, when they say corn, they mean any grains, not, you know, maize. That means that drinks like whiskey were still allowed. And more to the point, gin would be a legal spirit in England, which is going to make the 1700s a hellish period. But this act restricted, severely, the production of rum. The biggest business, the chief fundling of nearly every West Indian colony, was restricted. Barred in some locales. What's more, England was a mercantile economy the people of the empire weren't permitted to trade with anyone outside of the empire. Now this act, well, I don't want to dive in too deep today, but imagine this. Imagine that you're a planter, the owner or operator of a plantation in the West Indies, someone who produces sugarcane. Now most of the profits from your processed sugarcane, the raw sugar, most of those profits go back to England, but you had been able to earn a tidy living by selling rum. And then this new king bans the production of rum. The one way that you ever made any kind of money is just snatched away. So what do you do? And I'm not saying that this did happen, but wouldn't it be handy if in that situation you happen to have access to a crew of 
rough-and-tumble criminals, you know, sea robbers, real Robin Hood types, who might occasionally steal a shipment of rum from, say, a French vessel in the Windward Passage, maybe. A ship that they could take to their well-defended base at Nassau and then sell this stolen rum to whoever they wanted to. After all, they were pirates. They weren't bound by legal restrictions. This would be a, if it happened that way, a neat and tidy way to avoid the prohibition of rum production, wouldn't it? Which catches us up to our overall point in our story. Now, as far as the Pirates of the Round are concerned, aside from the drink that they were enjoying there on Madagascar, rum and alcohol in general doesn't play a major factor because they were stealing from the Muslim world. And by that point, alcohol was forbidden. But when we shift our focus away from the Pirates of the Round back to the Western Hemisphere... After this prohibition by William and Mary, the theft and black market sale of rum is going to be the biggest business of every pirate in the Caribbean. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody that has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show... You all make it possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, you can visit us at piratehistorypodcast.com, about which keep your eyes and ears open. We have news in the works. But as always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight